Well, welcome to, I think it's talk six in um, Breakfast with Jesus, uh, and we're still going through Jeremiah. And on this particular talk, I want to share the, um, the meditations I've had uh, around what I think uh, are a couple of verses that are candidates to be the epicenter of the book, the, the book's kind of governing theme. The, the whole book, Jeremiah, is quite long and it quite famously meanders and it's hard to get a flow or a structure into it. Um, I, I, it, is, it is nonetheless you know, the work of genius and is replete with um, great rhetorical and literary devices. Um, so I, I like to think of it like an impressionist painting. Um, that's got a series of um, perspectives and that, um, uh, but like a good impressionist painting, it's got cause from which uh, the perceptions radiate. And I think this verse is certainly a candidate for being the core, uh, the deep core of, uh, of the book. And so the verses I'm talking about uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Um, my good friend Tony Morgan sent me these verses on my birthday recently, but they've, they've, uh, they've, they've lived long in my heart. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, let's just um, put these verses in in context which we've been really framing a lot of Jeremiah in, which is the um, angry God issue. And that's how I began, uh, because Jeremiah is famously a book about judgment and traditional um, evangelical ways of handling this that I've heard um, will leap straight from this judgment into God's judgment on sin generally, and therefore into final judgment of uh, the, the justice of God revealed against sin, which frames the whole gospel. And I think that's wrongly skewing the gospel. Um, I think the problem we've got with this evangelical reformed gospel, and I'm going to just say this first, because that's going to put in context what we're going to read here, um, is, well, the end game of this way of framing the gospel is getting saved. But that, what does that mean? And that, that just begs the question, um, yeah, fine, my sins are forgiven, and then what? Um, where does that get me to? Um, it's really a negative definition. Um, it's like telling me if I've got a particular disease that um, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll cure that disease. Well, that's good. I'm very pleased. Uh, that's wonderful. But what then do I do with my life? Uh, a, a cured disease cannot give me the rationale for my life or the purpose for my life. 
Um, it simply doesn't address the existential question of why, why we exist in the first place. Now, this, I think, uh, framing of the gospel and, uh, um, has inadvertently led to some real um, limitations, and which I, which I see a, a logic, logical on one hand and rhetorical on the other. Um, it tends to leave Christians without much of a further goal because, you know, I'm forgiven, good, and then whatever happens seems to be anticlimactic. Now, no one tries to say that, but I think that's in practice uh, led to the problem of um, uh, establishing a meaningful trajectory for growth. Um, um, I think there's some more sinister problems with the gospel. I mean, I asked uh, Sarah, uh, our daughter, you know, what, how she's sort of heard the reformed gospel and keeps hearing it, and she quickly summed it up as it's a fix yourself up story. Um, you know, get the sin out of your life and keep fixing yourself up, which becomes quickly pretty and. Uh, inherently depressing, and, and I think um, I think that's a, a quite a typical um, experience. So, um, uh, experience of you know, people sitting in church pews and, and hearing this framing of, of the gospel around um, forgiveness and sin and the justice of God. I think there's a further problem, um, which is the evangelistic problem. I was recently, and that's what I meant by rhetorical, you know, what, what's the source of our persuasive message to the world? And um, recently I was away playing golf actually with a group of guys uh, who were Sydney Anglican, very nice people. And at, at dinner there was an interesting conversation. I only, I didn't participate in it because it was at the other end of the table, but I can clearly remember pricking my ears up because this particular guy called Kevin was saying, for the modern atheist, sin is not relevant. So the gospel's not answering a problem that they think they have. He was seeing that as a, as a massive um, rhetorical blockage to the gospel. And I think he's quite right. He's quite right. Uh, so, you know, I think the way we frame this justice of God and, and forgiveness gospel um, has... I mean, if it's correct, then fine, we have to deal with it. If that's the most total and coherent and all-encompassing way of framing the good news, then fine, let's live with it. But I don't think it is. I don't think it is. And I actually think um, it falls into that religious trap that Bonhoeffer was trying to escape. Um, we, uh, I have often... Um, quoted uh, this very famous letter of Bonhoeffer, uh, which he wrote in his um, last year of his life, uh, when he talked about moving towards a completely religionless time. And um, I suppose he was predicting the secularism that, we're, that is now upon us and which many Christians really feel um, chafed by, you know, almost resentful. Um, he didn't have that attitude. Bonhoeffer didn't have that attitude. He actually said, um, 
the challenge then is how can Christ become Lord of the religionless as well? Uh, uh, if religion is only a garment of Christianity, and if an, even if this garment has looked very different at different times, what is a religionless Christianity like? And that was his, uh, he, he was almost, um, uh, he was awkward about this because he began the letter to, uh, written, it was written to his uh, friend um, Eberhardt, and he said, look, I can only talk to you about these things. People will think I'm a heretic. Well, I think what uh, we glimpse here in, um, in Jeremiah gives us a way forward with uh, Bonhoeffer's search for a religionless uh, Christianity. Because I think what we've got here in, in these verses is a wider paradigm. It's a vision for, let, let, let's, call, let's call it a vision for the good life. And it's framed by knowledge, not by religion, not even by forgiveness. Because it says the goal of life, when Jeremiah establishes the goal of life, it is the knowledge of God. And these verses uh, have, are like a little jewel which we can unpack. Um, the first thing is that this knowing precedes all behaviours. Uh, let me repeat this. This knowing precedes all behaviours. I'd go further. Behaviours without this knowing are useless. I have listened again and again in my Christian life to people framing discipleship invariably in behavioural terms. Um, you know, read your Bible, go to church, witness to people, um, establish some kind of service at church, etc., etc., etc. I've rarely heard the framing being we must first know God and let's explore this. But this is what Jeremiah says that this. He's really establishing the goal of life. And he's not establishing it in terms that are religious or ritualistic. Um, he doesn't mention the law in these verses at all. He's establishing the, um, the word that, that, that the um, English Standard Version uses is the ambition of life. That's really an interesting phrase because it's, it's accepting that all humans have a, quote, um, ambition in life. You know, we've got a something we're questing towards, what we want, what we want to get out of life. And so in a way, it's a formula for what I think broadly Miroslav Volf called the good life. Let's drop religion and let's say, what's the good life? What's the good life? So the boasting they're talking about is something to be proud of. Um, now, he says straight away that wisdom, riches and power, they're the three that are mentioned, they're not the end goals of the good life. Importantly, they're not forbidden. The text does not forbid them. It just limits their significance. They have no end in themselves. Um, they cannot be, they cannot define and frame a life well lived. Understanding and knowing God, and I love that understanding. Understanding and knowing God is the ultimate ambition it's the ultimate achievement and outcome of a good life. So this makes the knowledge of God the core of the good life. Um, now, this knowledge is, the, is now the root and 
core to all behavior. And if you don't begin with a knowledge of God, then your behavioral outcomes will become religious or, I think, pharisaical. And now, importantly, I think this knowledge of God is not merely uh, some kind of discrete, objectified topic you know, that's one among several. So you cannot think of the knowledge of God like a category. For instance, um, alongside the knowledge of microfinance, and then there's the knowledge of biology, uh, or even the knowledge of theology, um, or the knowledge even of a single person, like knowledge of Jack, knowledge of Susan. Uh, Jeremiah is not adding this knowledge of God alongside other areas of knowledge. Um, rather, it is the defining filter through which we understand all things. We see all things through this filter of the knowledge of God. Um, that's very much like the famous C.S. Lewis quote that um, he talked about uh, knowing God as, or believing in God like he believes the sun rises in the morning. Um, not that, that he looks at the sun, but that the sun shines a light through which he sees all else. And I think he's really just quoting, I think it's Psalm 36, which says, in thy light we shall see light. So this knowledge of God is, is architectonic. It's a knowledge which now filters all other knowledge. It's not one that sits alongside. That's, that's really what we have proclaimed here. And therefore the goal of life is educational. The goal of life is educational, the knowledge of God. Um, can't develop it here, but uh, one very, um, I think, nourishing point from St. Augustine um, in De Trinitate, on his book on the Trinity, is the knowledge of the good is the knowledge of God. Wherever you perceive anything good, you are perceiving God. So we could say, if we wanted to use completely non-religious terms, knowing what the good is, on the earth is the source of all life. And you know, if we are thinking in rhetorical terms, in other words, using very non-religious terms to begin to communicate the gospel in our modern era, that might be a good place to start, knowing what the good is, knowing what the good life is, what is the good life, which can lead us to the God life. <laughs> um, but I think the on-ramp to a conversation is this, what is the good life? So um, that's the first point, this overarching architectonic knowledge of God. Second point out of these verses is really uh, significant, which is that knowing God means knowing the earth, knowing the earth. So we're not talking about a abstracted transcendent knowledge of God. It actually says you, that God practices if you know and understand me, you know that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. So the knowledge of God leads to a grasp of God's character and intentionality working on the earth. Um, so this suggests the knowledge of God is we begin to see the earth as personal, um, as the handiwork of God everywhere, everywhere we look on the earth. Uh, in nature and in systems and in people, 
and in history, we are seeing the handiwork of God somehow or other. It's mysterious and part of wisdom is to be able to discover that identity in all these different aspects. Um, and thus we think, uh, we, we begin to see uh, creation not as an ob object, but as the handiwork, artwork of God. Um, this means that a few things. Uh, number one, the earth is the field of play for God. That is, I think, everywhere backed up in scripture. And uh, so this says that, that knowing God is, is, is intrinsically bound up with a, with a knowledge and a feel for the earth and its creation and its destiny. Um, obviously, we can widen this kind of knowledge to, therefore, what is the knowledge of God's relationship with creation, with the created order, with, with the cosmos? So to know God is to grasp something of his interest in the cosmos and its creation. I mean, we have to be able to give an intriguing, coherent answer to the question, why was creation necessary? Why would the creator want to create? I don't think very many Christians have even thought about that. But if you, that's, that's, you've got to go there. You've got to go there. And to go there means, to put it more boldly, is to be able to talk about the relationship between the infinite and the finite, between the divine and the mundane. How can the infinite, why can the infinite want to create the finite? I mean, most, as, I, as I say, most Christians wouldn't go there, but it is the greatest, I think, theologians were intrigued by this. I'm thinking particularly of Maximus the Confessor, because where you get to, as you start to think this way, where Maximus got to, and I think Ian Proven is the guy who's probably most, accessibly talked about this is we begin to see we are in the and so is John Walton but I think probably I'd start with Ian it, it this creation is a temple it's a temple it's not divine but it is sacred and that changes everything that changes everything uh, we, this now suggests a picture of creation as the tabernacle of God the habitation of God not just man and it also suggests that God has a, an ongoing and deep sustaining presence in creation. That, as it says in Colossians, all things are held together by the word of his power. Um, one of the great psalms that lays this out is Psalm 19, um, which gives us the two books picture of scripture. Um, and of the knowledge of God. You know, the first half of the psalm is nature and creation as the book of God in which his purposes are written. And then the second half is uh, revelation. And, and for a long, long while, the church had this idea of the two scriptures, the scripture of creation and the scripture of revelation in the Bible. And I think we've lost a lot of that and we need to regain, regain a lot of it. Because what that picture gives us is a lot of common ground with yet-to-be believers. We can start talking about common grace. We can talk about, okay, yeah, rather than talk about the Bible, talk about the Bible of nature and creation and, and, and do uh, unpick that with its mysteries, its dissonances, its challenges. You know, what's the meaning of it? What's the meaning of it? Um, which is what we see Paul doing in Acts chapter 17.
So yeah, knowing God means knowing the earth. Um, and then the third point is that knowing God is knowing the rule of God. God is working on the earth and he's working through human agents. So this is why I think, in, certainly in my life, the so-called faith at work movement is very important. It's everywhere God is working. He's working in, on, to, on top of the earth, on top of this created order. There are these human systems, families, tribes, um, organizations, kingdoms. There are kingdoms, right? Let's call it, that's, the, that's the scriptural word for what today might be a modern, modern word, might be the systems that, that are governing the planet. And God has great interest in these systems. We're not just talking here about admiring sunsets. We're talking about being intrigued by systems of law, by systems of delegation, by the way families might um, begin to orchestrate their relationships, um, by what growth and development looks like. All of these things are at the heart of knowing God his work on the earth. Um, so we see God who is shaping and transforming the earth. That's what this verse says. And, and when an artist shapes something, the artist's character and values come through. So God isn't just creating. In his works, he is revealing himself in the same way that if I look at a painting, as I give this talk, I'm looking at a painting in front of me. And every painting has got something of that artist in, in, in them. So the first and the primary one is loving kindness. This is really important. And it isn't just any kind of, uh, of love. It is expressed as steadfast love, that this is the primary um, motive and framework for understanding God, not actually justice. Justice comes second. Love comes first. So to know God is to recognize that love frames his relationship with all of the earth. And then flowing from love is justice. And as I said, secondary, not primary. Because justice, as some of my earlier talks in Jeremiah point out, justice is understood as an outworking of love. Um, it's not, it, I think the traditional idea of justice and God's holiness is the, is the, is the examination, the big exam in the sky, right? You know, we all, people, a lot of people still have nightmares waking up. They've got the big exam of life. You know, everyone sitting in year 12 um, in Australia is fearful of exams. Um, we're all fearful of, of being examined and failing, failing. you know, it's, uh, uh, I, I still have, a recurrent nightmare, it's a funny one, that I've actually uh, signed up for a university course and I'm about to sit exams, except I haven't gone to any of the lectures and I can't remember a, a, you know, a, a damn thing about anything and how do I get out of this one? Um, it's funny that, you know, I, because I'm, I'm cavalier, you know, and I of all people should be not worried by this, but it is a recurrent nightmare. I, utterly unprepared for some arbitrary set of questions that I have no idea what they're going to be. Well, this is I think the mental model underneath what most people think of as the holiness of God. Some arbitrary set of rules. Well, wh wh why are the rules there? What's the point? I mean, it's they're arbitrary. Um, this sees justice not like that, but as contravention of the love of God. 
and of the people and things that God loves. He wants his character and his life to govern politics, society and relationships. Any reading of Jeremiah, you've got to read it in context, all the prophets, which is the, the book of Kings in particular and Chronicles. And it's completely, it's very notable that the sins that are specified, and they are specified, they're actually not just specified, they're poetically um, captured, are largely sins of leaders and rulers. They're, they're not the sins of the common people. They are sins of inequity, greed and exploitation almost universally. And that's the case. I'll finish by explaining it here. And so it's very clearly aimed at hierarchy and uh, meritocracy, um, the holders of wealth and power. And the prophet is invariably on the side of their victims who are the common people. And then the third one is righteousness, which really is understood as... Um, the, uh, the notes in my ESV study Bible, I think quite good on this. It's faithfulness to his promise. God is righteous because this is the shalom. This is his uh, fulfillment of the promise of life on the earth, shalom on the earth. He is the God of hope. So um, these verses are really, I think, a wonderful encapsulation of the goal of life, not compliance, uh, the outcome, not kind of forgiveness, Important as that might be, it's means to an end. God's goal is that he be known, he be understood, and understood subtly, infinitely, and uh, in a a way that must be dynamic and unfolding, but not just understood arbitrarily, but how he's working out his character on the earth with us as agents of that. So it establishes... It establishes education, quote unquote, um, as the goal of life. Um, I'll just finish by drawing your attention, if you wanted to look at it, to the way that these verses, which are the end of Jeremiah, fit into the immediate context. The first part of Jeremiah uh, spells out, in a sense, the problems to which this knowledge is the antidote. And this chapter 10 gives you a positive way forward. Um, Jeremiah spells out the sins to which this lack of knowledge of God has led, and they are very interesting because they're not about the, they're, they're not the traditional catalogue of sins that I've heard when from sermons. <laughs> they they tend to we've got a modern fixation on sexual sins and uh, and greed, not giving enough money to church. That's what I have heard again and again and again from the pulpit, drives me mad. That's not mentioned here. The whole of chapter nine is about deceit. Verse four, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put um, no trust in any brother for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies, heaping oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me. There, the end of it. What is refusing to know God? It's a life of deceit. That's why I believe Donald Trump is such a dark force because, I mean, you know, we've had many despots and heavy-handed rulers on the earth but none of them chill my soul as much as people who make an art form of deceit. 
which is what Trump has done all his life. And that's why, you know, the modern evangelical support of Trump is a, um, just a unimaginable um, travesty um, because the guy has survived by, he's now developed into a, into a whole political force denial of the truth. Which is exactly what Jeremiah, I mean, one wonders what Jeremiah would have said about Donald Trump. I can tell you for sure that he would not be part of the evangelical right supporting him. Um, so, you know, moving away from that, how many sermons do we hear talking about deceit, talking about the way we deceive each other? It's hard to imagine a society totally dominated by deceit because there's, you know, he's really referring to the time of Manasseh here. Uh, there's a, a documentary on Netflix at the moment called Fear City about how the mafia ran New York. And that's a good thing to look at and just put that in your mind. Say, well, imagine that's Jerusalem under Manasseh, you know, with the whole place in the stranglehold of deceivers and liars and blackmailers. Chapter 10 then moves to the few, you know, how he wants his people to be, which is really um, interesting because it, it says, do not be superstitious, don't, don't, be, don't put your faith in idols, it is faith in the creating God. Chapter 10, verse 12, he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. So what this leads to is a wonderful verse concluding chapter 10, which is um, that the truth about ourselves lies outside ourselves. It says in chapter 10, verse 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. So we don't look at ourselves to find the truth. We look at the living God who has created this world we live in. So that's, I think, the goal of the good life, according to Jeremiah.